from the prophet Isaiah. Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you when you pass through the waters. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. You are my witnesses, my servant, whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. Beside me there is no Savior. I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses. I am God. Also from today on, I am he alone, and none can rescue from my power. I act, and who can reverse it? These are the words of Isaiah, the prophet, to his people that are meant to evoke from his people a sense of awe and wonder and to instruct them about who God is. It's a doctrine of God, a theology of God. But where does Isaiah and where do the other prophets, where do they get their foundation for understanding who God is? Certainly Isaiah writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But as we'll see this morning, the words of Isaiah are rooted in the teaching of Moses in the very passage in Deuteronomy that we look at today. About two weeks ago, I bought a pair of new shoes. They were actually uh, hiking boots, as you can see here. And I kind of bought them, that my, my boots were kind of falling apart, and I bought them for man camp, but obviously for beyond that. I actually I got a good deal on them, got them at Bob's stores, kind of snuck over there and picked them up. And I brought them with me to man camp and, and wore them while we were there. And uh, in fact, on the second morning of man camp, Sunday morning, I got up while it was still dark. I got dressed, put on my shoes, I grabbed my things. I went out for a little bit of a uh, quiet time and then met up with some guys around the fire pit down on the beach. And I was probably at the fire pit for somewhere around 45 minutes when my bunkmate who sleeps underneath me, Chris Tian, Chris is also the head of our safety team here at GBC, he came down to the fire pit. But there was a certain level of awkwardness to it. You see, I was seated at the fire pit and he comes and he just sort of appeared standing there. And so I'm sitting, he's standing, and he's just kind of looking at me like this. And then he says these words. Those shoes comfortable? <laughs> and I looked down, and I wasn't wearing those shoes. And I looked at his feet, and he was wearing those shoes. You see, in the darkness, I had slipped on the wrong 
shoes. Now, what's fascinating about that is it just so happened that the guy who was sleeping underneath me in the bunk underneath me had the same exact style, different brand of shoes, and were the same exact size. So it cut me a little slack. <laughs> but, you know, I think that our ideas about God can kind of be like that. That what we know, what informs us about who God is, can kind of be like slipping on somebody else's shoes in the dark that sort of fit but they aren't the exact match. You see, they're our size, perhaps they feel right. They're ideas that, uh, that, again, we slipped on in the dark, but we haven't put them on in the light. We don't fully understand who he is. And what Moses is going to do in this text, essentially, is to turn the lights on and kind of like my friend Chris say, bro, you're wearing the wrong shoes. Your ideas about God were formed in the dark. And perhaps for you, your ideas about God maybe even came from just uh, the culture at large, from uh, uh, television, movies, from Hollywood. Your sense of who God is and truths about him, so to speak. Maybe your ideas of God came from some professorial influence or influences in your life. Whether that be uh, teachers or instructors in college or university or even just bloggers that you like to follow or podcasts that you've listened to in your life. It's probably very likely that a lot of your ideas about God have been informed by your own religious experience and whatever that looks like, patterns of religious behavior as opposed to a real relationship with God. And so Moses, again, in this passage, sort of turns on the lights to help us understand. He says, let me make clear, O Israel, and ultimately by extension to us, who this God is. And by the way, he is magnificent. Now, I will tell you that I was kind of challenged by the guys at man camp, kind of with this idea, I bet you can't use that as an illustration in your sermon. And not only did I do that, but it's even the title of the sermon. So there. Uh, but you know, this, this passage in Deuteronomy is fundamental, and, and we are in a series, if you're new with us this morning, uh, on Deuteronomy, we're going to, this is the last message in this series. We'll pick Deuteronomy up again the third week of January. And uh, in, in our message this morning, we're kind of reflecting back on the previous two. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God's law, his rules, what he says to us is not some burdensome and oppressive thing, but it's actually a gift of his grace that he tells us not only who he is, but who I am and what's expected of me to be able to relate to him and have a relationship with him. Compl uh, comparatively, especially when we consider the ancient gods and the gods of our culture that are basically precarious and unknowable. Here's a God who gives us the grace of known expectations. And, and then last week, Zach wrestled with this idea that he can't squeeze life out of lifeless things with three very practical uh, applications of these categories, these three categories of idols that are covered in Deuteronomy and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. He challenged us to give those things up, those things uh, which, which inform too much of our identity, which require too much of our devotion and become idolatrous in our lives. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, Moses concludes this sermon to his people. And if you remember from our first week, this also concludes the historical prologue part of Deuteronomy as we come to the end of chapter 4. And what Moses is going to do is he's going to starkly juxtapose God's attributes, his nature, his essence, his character with his acts on behalf of his people. And ultimately, we're going to see that God's nature and his acts compel me to live for him when I look at them Together. Now, just to kind of even further whet your appetites and get you leaning in, here's what three different scholars say about this little section of the book of Deuteronomy. Tom Constable of Dallas Theological Seminary says this, 
The conclusion of Moses' first sermon here is one of the greatest revelations of God's character in the Old Testament. Peter Craigie says, from a literary point of view, these verses are amongst the most beautiful in Deuteronomy. They are prosaic in form, but poetic in their evocation of the marvelous acts of God. Finally, Old Testament scholar Eugene Merrill says, the passage at hand is without comparison as a discourse on the doctrine of God. And so with those thoughts in mind, as we anticipate this text, pray with me this morning. Our God and Father, we, we want to be leaning into what you have to say to us this morning. And Lord, just from a, a, a pastoral burden this morning, I know that people in this room and people watching online, that we, we're, we feel the burden, God, of the tension and division in our country. Lord God, we feel the burden and the tension, some of us in our homes or our marriages or between our adult children or the pressures in, uh, of not knowing exactly what we're doing in, in parenting our younger children, Lord that some of our friendships have gone through strain, Lord, that our, our boss-employee relationships uh, have tension. Lord, our relational world, for many of us, has a weight to it. And so, God, would you help us if we, as we look at this text to have soft hearts and open minds to understand this primary relationship that you want to have with us that reorients all our other relationships, all the other stresses of life, God. Would you center us as we study this text, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4. I know the online notes uh, said Deuteronomy 14. We're in chapter 4, not 14. Uh, just so that you can follow around, uh, follow along. And we're in verse 32. Moses writes, Indeed, ask about the earlier days that preceded you from the day that God created mankind on the earth and from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything like this great event ever happened or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has a people heard God's voice speaking from the fire as you have and lived? Or has a God attempted to go and take a nation out of his, uh, uh, as his own out of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, and war? by a strong hand and an outstretched arm, by great terrors, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. You were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. He let you hear his voice from heaven to instruct you. He showed you his great fire on earth, and you heard his words from the fire. Because he loved your fathers. He chose their descendants after them and brought you out of Egypt by his presence and great power to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you in and give you their land as an inheritance as is now taking place. Today, recognize and keep in mind that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below and there is no other. Keep his statutes and commands which I am giving you today so that you and your children after you may prosper and so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Indeed, Deuteronomy 4, this section is very poetic. The cadence of it is beautiful, but it's powerful in what Moses wants to communicate to his people. So he'll address really in three sections, three, three things. Number one, that what God has done, God of the universe in selecting and saving and redeeming this people, what he's done, it's the best thing ever. Number two, Moses will highlight that it's the love of God that motivated what he has done. And number three, he'll call his people to personal commitment, to commit to obedience to this God. 
Moses is really aiming to do three things as he reaches this crescendo in his message to his people. And they, they really apply to us to teach us that he is the only God. To correct our false ideas about God. Put on the right shoes, so to speak. And therefore correct our behavior. Paul tells us in Romans, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That's what Moses aims to do. Because what informs our mind, our ideas about God, uh, eventually gets to our heart attitudes and our worldview and all of those things. And then becomes actions in our lives. And so Moses wants his people to be grounded in right ideas of who God is. And then lastly, he's using this text, this teaching on the doctrine of God to prepare his people to receive and to walk in their inheritance. So too for us, we have to have right ideas about God. We have to have right theology about God for us to gain our eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. So Moses in the beginning section here is really dealing with and continuing with this idea that we've looked at in previous sermons about the uniqueness of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. That he is unique when measured against all other gods. And he teach, teaches foundationally or fundamentally about four areas of God that, that Israel can look at in their history as they understand who this God is. Number one, his majesty. Number two, his power. Number three, his dignity, or we could use the word the honor of God. And finally, his, his authority. And in this passage, we see all four of those, those qualities brought to, to the fore. So beginning with his majesty, Moses says, he begins with, indeed, ask about the earlier days that preceded, preceded you. From the day that God created mankind on the earth, from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything like this happened? He is a majestic God. Moses moves very quickly from God's creative act of, of humankind and, and the universe to his redemptive act. That there's something majestic about this God who's the creator of the universe, who also is the creator of this redemptive relationship. He is majestic. Secondly, Moses talks about God's power. He talks about the specific deliverance of God's peoples. Well, he actually begins with, with God giving them the law at Mount Horeb, God speaking to them out of the fire. But that leads him to talking about their deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea. And he says that what God does is that he delivers them with great might and with an outstretched arm, with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, which is biblical metaphor for strength and de deliverance that's unparalleled. This idea of a, a sort of the outstretched arm begins with Moses' uh, song of praise in Genesis 15, or in Exodus 15, right after the Israelites come through the Red Sea. And that imagery continues through the Old Testament. I was reminded early this, this morning of the hymn a debtor to mercy alone. Some of you may remember it. And the hymn writer writes this, the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. God is unequaled in his power. Thirdly, his dignity. We see his dignity picture. We could, again, use the word honor might be a better, a better word in our, in our modern context. But it's the idea that, that God is unique in how he goes about things. That, that God, who is uh, perfectly holy and majestic and powerful, would select a people for himself. That he would carefully and tenderly deliver them, sometimes with great power and, and miraculous acts, but that he would speak to them and lead them and tell them his expectations. Sometimes out of the fire, sometimes by writing his law on tablets 
of stone, but that everything that God does on behalf of his people is done with clear intent and purpose. He's a God who possesses a certain level, uh, an unequivocal level of dignity. Finally, his authority. He does what he does with absolute dominion. And Moses talks about dominion over the strongest and the greatest of nations, the dominion over nature, including thunder and fire and lightning and so on and so forth, but really over the universe itself. He's a God is unparalleled in his authority. Majesty, power, dignity, and authority. What do you learn about God from this passage or maybe from Isaiah? Just the reading of these two texts this morning alone. Maybe there's something that you either learned or that God has sort of redirected or corrected in your life or something that he's shaping in you to understand more clearly about who he is. God's actions, Moses contends, manifest his nature, his majesty, his power, his dignity, and his authority. And so Moses literally says, this is the best thing that's ever happened that the God of the universe chose, redeemed, saved a people for himself. This is the best thing that's ever happened, people. Reminds me of the song, The Best Day Ever. And I was thinking about that. You know, what is, what's the best day ever in your life? If you had to journal it or tell something about it. I think about uh, one of the best days of my life was the simplicity of the first day I got behind the wheel all by myself. My parents weren't there. Right? There was something about that sense of freedom and autonomy. It was great. Or the, the first day I held my, my firstborn son in my hands and just wept. I've told that story before. Or the day that I held my daughter for the first time. I had three sons. Sorry, my two middle boys always get the shaft. <laughs> but holding my little girl after four-year gap between our three kids and having a daughter for the first time. Oh, my goodness. It's certainly our wedding day. Right? I'd get in trouble if I didn't say that one. But really, our wedding day was the best day. We had an amazing wedding. There's 350 people there. It was out, we, the reception was outside. It was a beautiful 70-degree October day. And, and just seeing the, the, the circles of our lives sort of coming together, it was an amazing day. And as the day ended at 4 o'clock, uh, we actually, we, we were married in Swansea, uh, where my wife was from originally, and... Um, we had rented a limo to come home to our apartment in Westerly. So we hop in this limo. It was literally just a tan town car. We were completely underwhelmed. And, you know, Lord bless him, the guy that was driving, since we weren't that far away from him, he talked the entire ride home. <laughs> you know, we're trying to read our cards and like the heartfelt words that all people that loved us, right? And this guy is just... <laughs> but we get home to Westerly and, you know, we're about to head into the apartment, get out of these. She's in her wedding gown. I'm in these tuxes and to change and go get some dinner. And I'm like, hold on a minute. We're never going to be in this situation ever again. Let's go for a walk. The sun was setting. It was warm and beautiful. Early October. And we lived right next to Wilcox Park in Westerly. And so we went for a walk, hand in hand, in Wilcox Park, just drinking in all that happened that day. And, of course, we weren't thinking that we're in a wedding gown and tux. And so as we're passing people, they're like, hey, congratulations. Hey, you guys look great. You know, good luck to you. You know, whatever they were saying. And that's such a vivid and, and wonderful memory. And it really was the best day ever. What Moses is saying is that whatever your memory is of that, what God has done here has exceeded that. It is the best thing that has ever happened. And so Moses moves beyond that and he says, not only God's majesty, his power, his dignity, and his authority, but what drives God in that, what motivates his actions, what undergirds his actions, what superintends his actions, Moses says, is his love. 
And this is what sets him apart from all other gods. It's what makes Yahweh unique is his love. Verse 37, he says it. He says, because the Lord loved your ancestors, he chose their descendants after them and he brought them out of Egypt and he goes on. Because of God's love, he chose, he redeemed, he saved, he fought for, Moses says. J. Vernon McGee points this out, that this is the first time in the Bible, Deuteronomy 4.37, that God tells anybody that he loves them. I found that fascinating. He goes on, he says, God has demonstrated that he loves man from the very first chapters of Genesis, but up to this point, he hasn't said anything about it. Moses says it's the love of God that motivates, that makes him unique. And so what Moses is, is contending for as well is that God's nature and his actions are really intertwined. That his nature moves him to action. But the actions of God reveal or manifest his nature. They're inextricably linked. In the Bible, the word that sort of uh, helps us see that is the word righteousness. That's a very Christian-y word, right? right? We don't often use the word righteousness in, in the culture. But the word righteousness in the Bible, by definition, has both the idea of God's righteous acts, the right things he does on behalf of his people that Moses is talking about here, his redemption, and his character, his nature, his essence are both bound up in that word righteousness. And it's what's what Moses is sort of exploding here in the text. Well, nowhere else do we see more profoundly and perfectly the intertwining of God's righteous acts and his righteous nature than in the gospel of his son Jesus. You see, Deuteronomy may inform and be the cornerstone in terms of uh, theological thought about God for Isaiah and for the prophets as they teach and pronounce prophecies but ultimately, as we come to the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the full, perfect manifestation of that. Paul and Peter tell us that the gospel is the mystery of God made known. And so we can see these four elements in the cross of Christ as well. We see the majesty of God on display in the gospel. Peter says in his second letter, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter, in context here, he's talking about the fact that he got to see the transfiguration of Christ. He saw Jesus on the mountain, transfigured by God the Father, prepared for the work he was going to do on the cross. But in the context of the entire letter, Peter is talking about the gospel, that the majesty of Christ is, the display of, is in full display in the gospel, is the majesty of God himself. God's power is also displayed in the gospel. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, for the word of the cross is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. God's power, that same power that parted the Red Sea is the very power that, that yielded our salvation in what Christ did in the cross that Paul says elsewhere is the same power that raised him from the dead that is available to you and me today. What about the dignity of God or the honor of God? The dignity of God is displayed in the gospel as well. The writer of Hebrews says this, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death. And earlier he says, death for everyone. That Jesus in giving his life for us and going to the cross, ultimately as he is raised to life, he is seated at the right hand of the Father and experiences complete honor and dignity. 
Not only that, Jesus' actions in going to the cross, how he behaves throughout his life is done with complete integrity, honor, and dignity. How untrue that is for you and me so often. Finally, God's authority is displayed in the gospel. Paul says to the Ephesians believe, Ephesian believers, he, that is God, exercised this power in Christ far above every rule, every authority, every power, dominion, and every title that can be given. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. That Jesus is given ultimate authority. And, and how did he exercise that authority? Paul says a little bit later, by raising him from the dead. That the resurrection is the attribution of God the Father on the Son of complete authority. Majesty, power, dignity, and authority. Now think about this for a moment. The great paradox of the gospel is that the majesty of God, the majesty of the cross, only comes through Jesus, Philippians 2, laying aside the glory of his divine royalty. Right? It says Jesus lays aside his majesty that he is given the ultimate majesty as he goes through the cross and ultimately the resurrection. That God's power is displayed perfectly in the gospel and that Jesus becomes completely powerless. We'll celebrate this for four weeks. That he comes as a helpless infant. That he continually uh, uh, removes himself from employing the power that is at his hands. He tells the disciples, do you not think that I could call 12 legions of angels to deliver him out of the Garden of Gethsemane? And yet he completely relinquishes his power for the purposes of God the Father and salvation. Think about his dignity, that Jesus in the gospel is the highest expression of God's dignity, but it comes through the vehicle of the complete indignity and humiliation of the cross. As Jesus is whipped, as his beard is pulled out, as he's spat upon, as he's mocked, and as he hangs naked on a cross. And the Father's wrath is poured out on him instead of, instead of me and you. And finally, the authority of God. Jesus inherits all authority in heaven and earth again by completely relinquishing, relinquishing it, putting himself in subjection to the Father's will, but even the authority of his creatures. Now make no mistake, the New Testament tells us that Jesus gives up his life willingly. But majesty, power, dignity, and authority. The gospel, as it were, is a multiplex paradox that finds its perfect fulfillment through and precisely because Jesus relinquishes all four of those things. And he does it for you and he does it for me. And that brings us to his love. God's love is on display in the gospel. And I love the King James here of Paul's words to the Ephesian believers when he says, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, has, has quickened us with God and made us alive with him. For by grace are you saved. Just like Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, it is the love of God that moves him to action. From, from Deuteronomy to Isaiah and the prophets to the New Testament, we have a God of majesty, power, dignity, and authority and love who chooses a people, saves them, delivers them, fights for them, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. But you know, he does so for a reason. You think about the, the uh, Israelites being delivered from Egypt, right? God does not choose Israel 
let them languish in Egypt for 400 years, bring them out through the Red Sea into the wilderness, uh, contend with them with a lot of grace through the wilderness, bring them into victory in the Amorite countries, and then through the Jordan River into the Promised Land so that they can just live fat, dumb, and happy and sit back. No, God has purpose for them. We're going to see that in just a moment. The same is true for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know that Paul says twice in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 11, that God chose you, that he purposed you, he predestined you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, but it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 11 says that in him we were predestined according to the plan, the plan of God. Well, for what reason? Verse 4 goes on to say, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. That we were predestined before the foundation of the world, but according to the plan of God. What was the plan of God? That we would bring praise to the glory of King Jesus. And so God has redeemed and saved us for two reasons. That we might be holy and blameless, set apart for him, and that we might bring glory to his name. Now, how do we do that practically? Well, that brings us to Moses' last uh, real point, an appeal for a personal commitment. So Moses says in verse 39, Today recognize and keep in mind that the love, uh, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other. Moses highlights what theologians call the, the transcendence and the imminence of God. The transcendence in that God is high and far above everything that we know and everything that exists in the universe itself. But at the same time that he is the one who's preeminent and who sustains everything that we see and know, including our very lives. Why does Mo Moses point to God's transcendence and his eminence in calling his people to be committed to God? Because right ideas about God lead to heart transformation, which lead to right behavior. Exactly what Paul says in Romans. Listen to what uh, theologian Thomas Chalmers says about this idea for the church today as we start to think about real-world application of these ideas that Moses gives us. He says this, he says, Seldom... Do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by mere force of mental determination? Reason and willpower are not enough, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. And the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And so God's nature and God's acts come together to compel me to live for him because he loves me. How do we do this, church? I love Paul Tripp's words. He says this, he says, here's the plan. God makes his invisible grace visible by sending his people of grace to reflect his grace to people who need grace. And then he says this, listen to the imagery he uses. He's called you to be the look on his face, the tone of his voice, and the touch of his hands. Moses goes on, and when he ends this sermon, he talks about cities of refuge, that God is going to plant certain cities in Israel that are places of safety, but they also mark the very real and near and tangible presence of God. It's a reminder that God is not a far off and precarious, but he's a God who is here in the community. And so Moses puts these outposts throughout Israel. Brothers and sisters, we are those outposts for our world. And so I want to leave you and leave me with this challenge this, this morning as we conclude. How am I an outpost? 
How are you an outpost? In that cubicle that you sit in, in that mom's group that meets at the playground, in that friendship in your work environment, or that partner, project partner that you work with, how are you an outpost there? And how can you, as you consider God's nature and his actions on your behalf through the gospel, be the look on his face, the tone of his voice, and the touch of his hands to those in your lives? Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for this powerful passage of Scripture. God, as we ruminate, as we marinate, as we soak this word in in the coming hours, would you use right truths about you to be like putting on the right shoes, God, to transform our hearts and our thinking and our worldview and lead to action, that we would be outposts for you in the place where you have put us, each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.